Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products industry. This podcast has been generously supported by Sanmar and PPAI. As Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit entity, friends like this help us keep Promo Kitchen on the air and online. Thank you so much for your friendship and support. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my good friend and fellow chef, Kirby Hossaman, president of Hossaman Marketing and Communications. In today's very special episode of the podcast, we welcome Seth Godin back to the program. For the uninitiated, Seth is the author of 17 bestsellers, each of which are extraordinary gifts for sales and marketing professionals. He's an entrepreneur, speaker, and masterful community builder. He writes about treating people with respect, the changing economy, and ideas that spread. In 2012, Seth joined us for a fascinating conversation about what it means to be remarkable in business and specifically in the promotional products industry. We spent time exploring the themes presented in his many books and daily blog. Fast forward three years, Seth joins us again to talk about some of the themes presented in his new book, What to Do When It's Your Turn. It's beautifully written, artfully presented. Seth compels people to take action over their lives and careers. It's an inspiring kick in the pants for anyone who has ever dreamed of accomplishing a big goal but has struggled to take the first step. Seth, it is such an honor to be speaking with you again. Welcome to the program, sir. Well, I consider it a privilege. It's really a treat, and uh, the fact that there are three of us this time makes it even more fun. Well, Seth, thank you so much. I'm also going to say we have to extend a special thank you to you because you at the moment are cooking lunch for your staff, and we are keeping you from that. So thank you so much oh, for that. you're not. You're just building up the anticipation. <laughs> exactly. Well, why don't we start off with the first question here. Seth, I'm curious as to why you decided to write this book, and why now? You know, most people aren't in a position where they can write a book when they want to write a book. Well, everyone can write one, but to publish one. And I long ago stopped thinking to myself, oh, it's time for me to write a book. What should I write? It's such a journey and uh, effort to bring a book to the world that I only write one if I have to, if the idea won't let me go, not because it's time. And a few years ago, I was pretty much done writing books, mostly because most people don't want to read books. They'd rather read a blog post. I don't need to chop down trees. I'm happy to make change any way that I can. In this case, though, I discovered this format printed in Vancouver that really felt like a book that people who don't like books would want to hold and browse and read and think about. And no one had ever turned it into a book. And that's not enough reason to write a book, but it opened a door for me thinking about what artifact could I create that someone would want to share. Because if people share it with those they work with, with their clients, with their coworkers, now we have a mutual topic, a topic we can all talk about. And that conversation, that's the conversation I work for every day. That's why I write a blog, so that someone will send it to someone else and the two of them can talk about it. And so this is as close as I've been able to come to that experience in print 
And it turns out I was right in many respects. The book became a bestseller the first day. We've sold more than 60,000 so far, which is a lot for a book. And way more important to me is the feedback I'm getting from people who talk about how the book is changing their posture. Because I think we are living in a revolution, the biggest change of our lifetime. And I also know that anyone who's listening to this is incredibly privileged, privileged to have time, resources, trust, authority, privileged to have the ability to make change. And I fear that we are wasting that privilege, and I don't want to do that. Why are we wasting that privilege? You know, I've spent time with people who are under-respected, under-educated, who don't have the ability to make the kind of change that most of us do. And if you ask somebody like that, how should I spend my day, I think that they would be angry, disappointed, offended if you told them that you had spent a third of your day watching viral videos, hmm. a third of your day in meetings where you weren't a key element and where you were shaking your head as someone blathered on, and a third of your day just trying to get by so you can go home and watch TV. Right. This is a, a magical moment in time. Anyone with a laptop can reach over a billion people. Hmm. The number of resources that are available to be put behind projects that elevate us is huge. And yet, we decide to establish our agenda for the day and the week and the month by what is important to someone else, and we race to the bottom when it comes to content, when it comes to getting a new client, when it comes to making a living. Mm. And I would really like to believe that we have the opportunity to make a difference at least as much as we have the opportunity to make a living. I love it. Seth, your earlier books were more focused on traditional business and marketing, where I feel this book is really more about art. How do you see the relationship between business and art? The world has changed in the last 20 years, and I am not largely, but I am smallly, tinily, partly responsible for that. That marketing used to be the same as advertising. Mm. And what started happening in the 1990s is advertising stopped working because we can ignore it ever more easily. The mass market stopped being a mass market and started splintering into little pieces. And the internet fundamentally changed our ability to connect. So if marketing is not advertising, what is marketing? Mm. And I believe marketing is the promise that we make when we tell someone a story about what we do. And that means everything we do is marketing. And if everything we do is marketing and the mass market is gone and average people buying average things is no longer a way to make a living and people in your industry completely understand this, that the generic water bottle with a logo on the side isn't going to make anybody any money because the minute you have a client who's going to buy a lot of them, they're going to buy it from someone cheaper than you. And so if it's not about how can I be cheaper than the competition who also sell average stuff to average people, marketing becomes something more human, something more real. Mm. And what it becomes is the human act of saying, I made this. I made this for you. The human ability to say, this might not work. And also, and this is the core of my book, to live with it might not work and it might work in our head at the same time. And we have an enormous amount of trouble doing this because we were raised to be obedient students and be successful cogs in the industrial system. And when you are a cog in a system, you're not allowed to say or imagine, this might not work. That's reckless. 
But if we're going to do something that's going to connect us, that people are going to talk about, that they will pay extra for, we have no choice but to do something real and artistic. And what it means to be artistic is to do something that might not work. We wanted to take a few moments to acknowledge two very special organizations that have helped make this podcast possible today, PPAI and Sanmar. Outfitting teams, businesses, and communities for more than 40 years, Sanmar is an award-winning supplier of blank apparel, bags, caps, and accessories. Family-owned and operated, Sanmar is based in Seattle, with eight distribution centers around the country to quickly serve customers with the industry's deepest inventory. You can learn more at sanmar.com. And here at Promo Kitchen, we are proud to be partners with and members of PPAI. PPAI is the world's largest and oldest not-for-profit association serving the $20 billion promotional products industry. They advocate for the industry's more than 34,000 businesses and its nearly half a million professionals. PPAI is the host of the PPAI Expo, the industry's largest trade show and is the industry go-to source on product safety and compliance and professional development and certification programs. For more information, visit them at ppai.org. And now back to our program. You know, Seth, I really like that. In some of the things that you've written in the past, I, I know you've said that in some way we're all weird. <laughs> and we should, just like you said here, not necessarily focus our business on the mass, but on niches, and I get that. For someone starting out, let's say in this industry, but in any industry, how do you tell someone new that they have to do a niche when in reality they just want any customer? They're trying to pay the bills. Well, thank you, Kirby. Here's the deal. The word niche has built in it the dismissive tone. You didn't use it, but it's built into the word. The dismissive tone of that's merely a specialty sideshow, that the real meat belongs to the people who can figure out how to get a customer and go for mass. And the argument I make in We Are All Weird is mass has left the building because the people who want average stuff don't care that much. And if they don't care, they're just going to sort by price. So if you are one of those people who justifies racing to the bottom by figuring out how to get a customer at any price, you are fooling yourself. Mm if you believe that that customer, that particular customer, is going to stop being a bottom fisher and start being somebody who is choosing to do important work. That's not what happens. What happens is people's worldview of, I am the kind of person who cares about this. I am the kind of person who wants to be known for this. I am the kind of person who will pay extra to get extra. That's one person. They're over on your right. And over on your left is the undifferentiated board, bottom fishing, RFP, circulating mass. And it feels like a shortcut to start with those people. It's not. It's a dead end to start with those people because those are the people you optimize for. Those are the people you end up with. So someone needs to be the 99 cent store. Someone needs to be the person who's selling junk to people who want to buy junk, but it doesn't have to be you. Seth, I'm interested in this idea of community building, something that you've played a huge role in for the entirety of your career. But what I'm curious about, and I think I represent the conscience of a lot of people who are listening to this, is how do you connect the dots between building a strong community and asking for the business? Ultimately, an investment in community building has to translate into sales at some point. 
how do you gracefully move people from community member to customer without offending them? Well, let me try to be specific, and you guys should jump in and correct me when I get the specifics wrong. But, you know, the business that you are in, you are leading the edge of this business, but the bulk of the business is inherently from its beginnings generic in that if I go to someone who wants to sell me a business specialty item, they have a big catalog. They didn't make the catalog. The catalog is a collection of things from the people who make items. Mm. And so it's very rare to find someone in the middle of the market who says, I am the only person who can sell you X. Because generally, like a travel agent, this industry has been people who bring a certain level of expertise but aren't necessarily selling you something that is one and only. And commodity businesses often choose to act like commodity businesses. And the frustration they face is then they get paid like they're a commodity business. Mm. So there are two ways, I think, that one can approach this problem. One way is to say, I am better at closing sales than my competition. And that what I'm actually getting paid for is getting found by the person who's about to buy or, more predictably, getting someone who wasn't about to buy to buy. Mm. I think there's a different way to approach this. And I think the way to approach this is to say that what you're actually charging for is expertise and trust and insight and the stuff just comes along for the ride. That when you think about the advisors, whether it's you know a Morgan Stanley or BBDNO or the other kinds of institutions that big businesses hire, they're not paying for accounting services. They're not paying for someone to set type. Mm. They're paying for the fact that someone of significance will work with them, bring to them a level of confidence and expertise and insight that changes the organization itself. And then they get the other stuff along for the ride. So there's never a discussion if you have a big four accounting firm that they charge you 400 hours of bookkeeping when it should have been 372 hours of bookkeeping. Because that's not really what they're charging you for. What they're charging you for is a confidential trusted advisor who's sitting at the table with you. And in every industry, including your industry, there are people who are doing this, where the CMO knows in one phone call that she can call somebody like this, mm. describe the upcoming event, describe the problem, describe the impact she wants to make on the industry, and this person, this trusted confidential advisor, will bring back a fair and honest and insightful and remarkable suggestion, and then they're done. Right. It's not, okay, thank you, now I'm going to submit this to 20 people who do what you do and buy it from the cheapest person. Right. Because the CMO knows if she does that, she's never going to get the confidential advice ever again from you. Right. So that posture is not available to everyone, but it's available to the people who are listening here. But in order to do it, you must reject serving the other customer the same way. You can't say to the other customer, we do all this singing, we do all this dancing just to close the sale, and then, sure, shop around. Because then you haven't sold the thing you really sell, which is that this medium has so many choices and so much potential impact and so many pitfalls that you'll make a bunch of crap that sits in the back of someone's closet mm. that your insight is what's really for sale, not your ability to close the sale. I absolutely love what you're saying, and I think that if I was to imagine the people listening to this podcast, they'd all be nodding their heads 
But here's something I want to come back to you and get your perspective on. So let's say I'm a sales rep. I may be on commission. I may be on base salary. And at the end of the day, I just have to make my number. Okay, I'm one of those salespeople with that kind of quota on my head. And I have been selling for the last 10, 15, 20 years a Gildan polo shirt or a such and such a pen for X dollars. And that's what the customer is getting. Never have I gone to them and said, my expertise is worth 500 bucks an hour, and then I'll give you the product at wholesale. There's a lot of different models in the promotional industry, but I think one of the tried and true models that we have is that we give away all this creativity and give away all this professional advice for free, but yet build it into the cost of the product. Are you recommending, Seth, that people in this industry reevaluate how it is that we price and not on the product, but more as an agency model? Is that what you're getting at? Well, first, let me respond to your question, because your question is based on several incredibly unfair fallacies. Mm -hmm. If you are that kind of salesperson, you chose to be that kind of salesperson. You don't yep. have to be, right? Yep. If that's the items you're used to selling, you chose to sell those items. You didn't have to sell those items. I used to be a book packager, and as a book packager, I sold really complicated nonfiction books to the top 10 publishers in America, and almanacs, things like that. Well. I could insist that I still have the right to do that, but that's not going to make anyone buy it from me because the internet killed that business. It's gone. Yeah. Now, in this case, what I am saying is that the tension, and my book is a lot about tension, comes from starting a conversation with a customer saying, here are the phone numbers in the websites of three people who are cheaper than me. Mm. By all means, if that's what you want, if you want a Gildan shirt and a pen, you know, custom shirts or whatever they are, please, they are better than I am at letting you upload an image, get it for cheap, and track it as it's coming. Hmm. Call me when you want my help. <laughs> I love it. And if you're not prepared to talk that way, then don't be surprised that you're left with people who are cheap and too stupid to use a website, hmm. <laughs> right? Because that's who's going to show up. On the other hand, if we are able to say to people, you used to put all your money into TV ads. Then you, one day you said, wait a minute, we need to put our money into web ads. And then you said, wait a minute, there's all these other things that are happening in the social, connected, tribal space that don't look like ads that we spend money on. So we buy content and we create conferences and all these other things because they work. Well, guess what? I have figured out how to use physical items, molecules, to create stuff that goes into the world and changes people. That's what I do. So I would be delighted to work with you. I charge this way, I charge this way, I charge this way. What matches the way that you do business? But what I don't do is sell cotton, thread, and stuff, because you can buy the stuff cheaper than I can sell it to you. And in fact, I'm happy to order it for you from any place you want, because I can order it better than you can. But if you want me to be the professional that everyone else in this building is, this is how I get paid. And maybe it's by the job, maybe it's by the hour, maybe it's on retainer. There are lots of ways I could imagine getting paid for this at scale that could make me a great living. And I also could imagine that this is just part of my portfolio, that in addition to selling giant cardboard boxes filled with wearables, I also know how to put on a conference. Mm. Because those two things have a lot in common. And the person who's trying to solve a problem with A probably needs someone to solve the problem with B as well. You know, Seth, I think to your point, you kind of mentioned it earlier, and I think this spins forward well. You were saying that 
part of what we're charging for is their trust in us, the creativity. And I think that it seems to me that the secret to gaining that trust is by giving more, by providing value up front. And, you know, I think that's consistent with some of the theme of what to do when it's your turn. People, I, Mark, need to take action in advance, you know, whether it's write a blog, create a video, and I think you're trying to convince people of that. Why do you think it's so hard to get people to choose themselves and take that action? I, I love that question. Let me try to answer a slightly different one, which is most of the people who buy these items are not the owner of the company. <clears throat> and it's a business-to-business -business sale. Well, business-to-business -business selling is all about two things. One, what will I tell my boss? <clears throat> and two, did you make me feel stupid? Those are the two things, not is it cheaper, not will this make me money. Those aren't the issues. The issue is when I tell my boss I did this, what will I tell her? And that's why, for example, it's so easy you know, to get a Hertz or an Avis car because no one ever got fired for buying a Hertz or an Avis rental, whereas if you, you know, get some third-rate thing and you and your boss have to wait half an hour for the car, you don't want to be in that position. Hmm. And then the, the bigger one is will you make me feel stupid? Well, here's the problem with the promotional specialty business. If I buy a thing from you, and because that's what you are selling, and I tell my boss I did, and anyone looks it up, and I could have gotten exactly the same thing for half the price, you just made me feel stupid. Mm. And if you make me feel stupid, I can't ever do business with you again. That's why there's a race to the bottom. Now, your point about doing things in advance, doing things first. The reason that we need to make videos or organize the, the kind of thing that you're organizing right this minute or speak at conferences or publish our best ideas to the world is so that we will be trusted. And the reason we want to be trusted is we are promising people we will not make you feel stupid. And that means that if someone is well known in their field, you get to say to your boss, don't worry boss, I bought it from Mark. That means we got the right product the right price. He would never make us feel stupid. That's what we are trying to build. Now the reason this is hard for people, and thank you Kirby for teeing that up, is because it makes you responsible. That it's not standing up and saying, anyone can sell this to you and I am anyone. It is instead saying, I have a point of view. Here, I made this. I think you should do this, not that. I think that these are the important things. Well, if you say any of those things out loud, someone might say to you, you know, you're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> and we really don't want to hear that. And the reason we don't want to hear that is in the industrial age, what we have taught our students and our children is lay low, because being called out as someone who's arrogant or a fraud or someone who is speaking up too much is one of the worst things that can happen to you. And I don't believe that. I don't agree with it. But that is what we have been teaching. You know, it's so interesting, Seth. I'm just listening to this. And I know that feeling of wanting to hide when you feel stupid and you've embarrassed yourself in front of your boss or in front of a colleague. And it's, it's horrible. And you're right. We do run away from it. But I, I'm wondering if there's some sort of ironic twist here that aren't you encouraging people to want to look stupid in some yes. sense? And how does Absolutely. that connect? I don't know if I'm getting way too meta and philosophical here, but how does that connect in some twisted way with making a client look stupid in front of their boss? Is there any win there, or am I just misunderstanding that? No, no, no. So that goes back to the idea that we are all weird. If you need to not look stupid in front of everyone, mm. you must act like a cog. Mm. 
But if you can understand that only 2% of the market embracing what you have to say when you're right is plenty, then you need to stake out a position that wouldn't work for some. So if we think about you know, the people who stood up five, seven years ago uh, and said, like Laura Fitton, who's known as Pistachio, shows up on Twitter right at the early days of Twitter and says, Twitter is a business tool. Mm. and starts talking about this and building an entire company on how does one use Twitter as a business tool. This was when Twitter had 10,000, 50,000 users. Right. A lot of people said, you're stupid. A lot of people said, prove it. You have no proof. A lot of people said, you're uppity. Just quiet down. This is not for businesses. And the businesses that did embrace it were a tiny fraction of the available base, but it was enough. And so she was willing to be stupid. And for certain companies, she was, quote, stupid at the beginning because she couldn't prove the ROI for six months, a year, two years, three years. But it's Laura Fitton who gets to write the dummies book about how to use Twitter for business because she went first, because she stood up before it was the received wisdom. And so now if you say, I'm going to put out a shingle and say that what I do is consult on businesses going on Twitter, you're worth $4 an hour. Because anyone can teach people how to do that. Yeah. The hard part is building, putting a stake in the ground at the beginning that's not going to work for everyone, but that you can justify from a position of generosity and art. Real quickly, Seth, when you do put yourself out there, and you know, I think several people, you know, certainly you have done an amazing job of that and have been an inspiration to me. When you do that, I mean, sometimes trolls are going to speak up. Of course. And, and intellectually, I know I'm supposed to ignore them, but it's hard. How do you do that on a regular basis? Well, if trolls don't show up, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> and, you know, I talk about the marathon in the new book. And the fact is, if you talk to someone who runs the marathon, you will never find someone who says, I love running marathons, but I hate the fact that I get tired. No one says, Teach me how to run a marathon without getting tired, because getting tired is part of the deal. The people who finish the marathon don't avoid getting tired. They figure out where to put the tired. Where to put the tired is the hard part. Well, the same thing is true with this work we're talking about. You can't say there may not be. It's not allowed for there to be criticism. What you have to say to yourself is, where do I put the criticism? And I have two suggestions for that. The first one is avoiding the resistance trap we set up for ourselves of seeking out anonymous criticism so that when someone, you know, we finish this podcast, you, what's the hashtag you want people to use? PK Seth. PK Seth. So it would be a real mistake for you guys to go look at the hashtag when we're done to see who's criticizing this talk, this conversation, because it's not going to make your work any better. You will not learn anything from what an anonymous troll has to say on Twitter about this conversation. If they're not willing to send you an email outlining the fact that you're stuttering and you have parsley in your teeth, well, then you don't need to hear it. Just don't look. I've never met, never once met an author who said that she had read all her one-star reviews on Amazon and now she's a better writer. So that's the first step. And the second step is when it does arise, we say thank you. Thank you for caring enough to tell me that. Thank you for caring enough to post your thoughts. Thank you for speaking up. And then we forgive them, and we forgive ourselves, and we move on. The meditative thought of being able to say, thank you, not let me explain myself. Let me tell you more. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Let's have an argument about this. But just thank you. 
frees us to go back to work. It's not easy, it's practice. And, and I think to go along with this, I've seen that you've written, you know, the person who fails the most wins. Can you explain that? There's some nuance here. If you <laughs> fail really, really big, if you fail through errors in judgment and morality, if you fail epically, you won't get to play anymore. <laughs> so you're not going to be the person who fails the most. On the other hand, if you fail productively, if you fail serially in the sense that you learn each time, and you produce well enough in between that you get to keep playing, then you're going to keep racking up the failures. And every time you rack up a failure, several things happen. One, you learn yet another way not to do something. And two, you earn the trust of people who see you as a resilient, honest individual who is willing to fail in the service of her art, mm. who's willing to fail on the path to doing ever better. So Miles Davis made some absolutely terrible, terrible records. And, like? You know, well, I have some over on the wall. I don't remember the names of any of them. But you know, during the disco era, the electronic era, and you know, you're on, you have a contract. You have to make a record, and you got four weeks left to go. You go to the studio, you make a record. It's just not kind of blue. It's a mediocre Miles Davis record. Or we listen to a speech by someone who's supposed to be a brilliant politician. Well, not every speech is the best speech he ever gave. Or we see a CEO who decides that they're going to do X instead of Y, and it doesn't work. Lots of organizations make big mistakes. Apple has had 18 different connectors for the various computers and phones they make. 18, why can't they get their act together? Mm. Well, it's a mistake. But we understand that they're on a journey, and that journey is interesting. And some people want to be on that journey, and that's what we have to sell. That if you want to go to market and say, I am perfect, and I am cheap, well, fabulous. And I have Google. I can find people just as perfect and just as cheap as you bid against each other. But if you can say to the world, I'm interesting and I care, and we might change things together, most people want to have nothing to do with you. But the right people will, and they'll pay for it. Seth, I've got a question about the non-entrepreneur and the non-freelancer. So I'll set this up. So your, your books speak predominantly to the independent freelancer, to the entrepreneurial person, ultimately the person without a boss. What advice do you have for the person who is screen printing t-shirts from nine to five each and every day and they have to meet their, I'm not going to say the word quota because I'm not comparing this to the salesperson uh, question, but I think ultimately what I'm interested in is that if you're working on the line in the promotional products business, how does art factor into your job when you have to print a thousand shirts by the end of the day or else? Well, here's the interesting thing. I got an email three days ago. The chief of staff of the United States Army, which last time I checked had 400,000 or so employees, maybe more, just picked the 10 most important books person in the Army needs to read, and Lynchpin was one of them. Mm. So. I think if you're talking about people who work in an institution that is pretty focused on compliance, I'd list the U.S. Army on that list. So I'm not ready to say that most of my readers are freelancers or entrepreneurs, and I certainly don't write just for those people, but it's a good way to feel like it's not for you. My dad, for many years, ran the largest hospital crib company in North America. It's in Buffalo, New York, UAW. United Auto Workers, unionized workforce. That's the kind of organization you're talking about. 
he spent more than a decade training the people in the plant to understand that if they act like they owned the place, everyone would come out ahead. And so it's somebody on the line who takes my dad aside when he's walking the plant and says, wait, Bill, why are we doing it in this order? Why don't we do it in that order? Mm. And that one shift turns into $100,000, which gets shared with all the employees because all of them know more than any of them. And if, you know, I used to run an organization with 400 employees, temporary employees, production people, you know, the kind of folks you're talking about. And either the boss is going to say to the team, I know exactly how you do it, here are the numbers, scientific management, which was an important but very damaging book of the 1910s and 20s, which said, take a stopwatch, measure everything, make it faster, or you say, the world is changing, and in a world that changes, no one knows the right answer. We have to test. When you're in an environment like that, yes, the person operating the punch press or the t-shirt press or the cappuccino machine probably has something useful to say, mm. and that ability to speak up internally can change things. And then the second half of it is the emotional labor that we do at work, and this isn't the person who's hauling t-shirt boxes, but it is the person who answers the phone, it is the receptionist, that emotional labor isn't the physical labor of lifting, it's the emotional labor of doing something you don't feel like, of smiling, of connecting, of listening, of being human. You know, I went to a fancy restaurant last week that just got a nice review, not from Joanne, but in the city, New York, and the hostess who greeted us was not hosting much of anything other than a pity party for herself. Mm. She made no eye contact. She grunted at us. She had no interest in who we were, where we came from, what we wanted. She did nothing to earn our trust or the money of the person who was paying her. And if you compare that to somebody who makes you delighted about the choice you made, welcome to the place you went, you know, that one moment which it, you know, $15 an hour took that person what, a minute? So what does that work out to be? I don't know, 20 cents. That 20 cents spent turns a $100 evening into a $500 evening. Hmm. That's a choice. That's a choice of management, and more important, it's a choice of the person on the line who can choose to bring their human self to work. That's awesome, Seth. And I love that you really do kind of get many of the nuances about our industry. As you know, we have an aging industry, and there's a generational divide that can be kind of a source of stress for many. What kind of advice would you give a more tenured salesperson? You can look at that, and when I say tenured salesperson, I, of course, mean all the gray hair I have. How can they make themselves more relevant to a 20-something buyer? Well, you know, let's go right back to where I started, which is you need to decide, if you're a 55-year-old salesperson, what exactly is it you sell? And who are you selling it to? Because remember, there used to be a scarcity of places one could buy an imprinted t-shirt, or a mm -hmm. scarcity of a places one could buy a beautiful handmade embossed briefcase. There was a reason that a lot of these companies have seven A's in their name, because they show up at the beginning of the yellow pages, or because you've been to enough conferences that word of mouth and business cards get spread around, you're the guy. But Google completely transforms all of this, and I have trouble bragging to my boss that I just bought $40,000 worth of anything from you without shopping around first, mm -hmm. unless 
you have chosen to be a different kind of salesperson. And the way that that happens is not by waiting for a client to decide they want to buy a specialty item. It happens because you are running seminars, you are giving speeches, you are writing ebooks or printed books, you are causing a change to happen in a subset of any industry where it comes down to people like us buy from people like you. People like us do promotions like this, that the standards, the measurements, the who's better at this than everybody else thinking is transformed by you. You're not just a bystander, you are the forward motion. That choice will pay off in some period of time that is more than three days, and it might be three years. But you got time. You got three years. Because if you don't start now, it'll be too late to start later. Once you are seen as that person, then a 28-year-old buyer is delighted to buy from you. Because the 28-year-old buyer may be an arrogant millennial, but he still has a boss. And if you can give that 28-year-old a story tell his boss that gets him a pat on the back, he'll be back for more. Seth, I'm just taking a look at the time. We want to make sure that we've got enough time for some q and I'm going to ask you one last question, and then we're going to turn it over to some eager folks who I know want to ask you some questions directly. My last question is a really simple one. When, Seth, did you realize it was your turn? You know, until Freud, most people in the world were unwilling to talk about the fact that they had a voice in their head. That this narrative in our head of our you know, self-aware monologue is brand new. I don't remember having a self-aware monologue my whole life. I can have one right now and say, oh, yeah, that, that. But I think early on, I saw things, noticed things, and wanted to talk about them. And I got very fortunate that the internet and the world lined up in a way that permitted these things to work. What I did make the decision to do about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was say, I know how to go to a meeting and pretend I believe something in order to get someone to buy from me. But what I found is that not only does it not work as well as I want it to, but when I tell my own story about my own vision, it works even better. And that I can serve my clients better. And I still remember this day, closing my briefcase, standing up after a 10-minute meeting, and saying, you know, I hear your objections, and you're right. We're probably not the people to sell this online promotion to mm. you. Thank you for your time. And these two guys looked at each other like, I was from Mars. No one had ever done this. One of the 100 most famous companies in the world. And they couldn't believe that I had listened to their objections and agreed with them that I shouldn't sell them anything. And they were so stunned by my candor that they stood up, insisted that my sales guy and I sit down, and kept us there for two more hours and ended up buying a huge online promotion from us. <laughs> because they couldn't get over the fact that somebody didn't say, yeah, 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 but now will you buy from me? And I think on that day, I realized that not only was this the human thing to do, but it turns out our economy wants us to do it. Seth, thank you. That was spectacular. I want to open it up now to some people for some Q&A. I think we've got about 15 minutes left. And Seth, thank you again for all of your time. I want to call Lee Strom from Sanmar to ask a question. We'll see whether my technical abilities here will allow us to... Okay. 
Lee up here. So let, let's cross our fingers. All right, so Lee, I'm going to unmute you here, and uh, welcome to the program, sir. All right. Seth, loving this take on how your theories apply to our industry. I, I have a, a crystal ball question for you. You spoke to a time when advertising and marketing were the same, and we're an interesting industry. We're one that's not always seen as mainstream media, but we are a form of advertising and media. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the health of the promotional products industry moving into the future. And just to give you a little bit of a background, you know, the industry's been growing by a few percentage points every year, at least since 2008. And I'm kind of curious if you're bullish on, on our industry looking ahead or, or cautious. Well, I would say for most players in the industry, it doesn't matter what's going to happen to the whole industry. It's what happens to the segment that any given person is part of. So those are the things that I would really focus on. If you're at the high end or if you're selling a disposable or if you're dealing with a certain client or a certain geography, the rest of the trend isn't nearly as interesting as what's happening in your part of it. I would say that there are probably two or three factors going on in the future. One is that the long tail, small companies, solo practitioners, people who ordinarily wouldn't have had access to your industry now do, and that the number of items that are available continues to skyrocket. So both of those things mean more people will be buying more things more often because of the democratization of the interactions. The flip side of that is, unlike digital media, physical goods don't scale. That if 10,000 times as many people see a video, it costs me zero. But if 10,000 times as many people want a t-shirt, it costs me 10,000 times as much. And so as marketing expectations shift to the scalable, th this industry is going to have a challenge in terms of marketing to marketers that the impact of a physical item can go up in a digital world, but it can't be used indiscriminately. Right? The whole idea of the t-shirt cannon is ridiculous because if you're going to indiscriminately splash items that cost you money, to undifferentiated masses of people who don't care, it's sooner or later going to completely backfire on you. On the other hand, you know, the right item in the hand of the right high leverage individual that maybe changes their perception of an institution is as close to priceless as marketing can get. And so we're going to have this opportunity in the face of the long tail to get more surgical. And that means more often saying no no to certain items, no to certain clients, no to certain users, because it's only by saying no that we can get to the real yes. Paul Bellantone, you've got a question. Seth, thanks so much for your time on this call and for the answer to that last question. PPAI represents and advocates thousands of member companies in the promotional products industry, so our focus might be different than any individual member. In your new book, I was taken by your story of Yertle the Turtle and the need to be recognized and supreme at the expense of generosity and meaningful connections. In our industry, members often get distracted by competing with each other rather than elevating the profession or focusing on winning over the hearts and minds of buyers. So I have a two-part question. Can you expand on how Yertle style can be helped in everyday business? And what can be perceived as a highly commoditized business. And second, what is the role of organizations like PPAI and Promo Kitchen 
and helping our members get there. All right, well, the first part is easy, and, and thank you for the kind words. You know, the URL spread came to me all at once, and I was very pleased at the, the impact it's had on people. But basically, what I'm saying is this. In your industry, 98% of the sales are sales that never happen that you are only reaching 2% of the moments and the people that actually transfer into someone writing a check and getting something purchased. So if you want to argue over the 2%, by all means, go ahead and do so. But it is far more productive to evangelize and delight the 98% who don't get it or don't get it often enough than it is to argue about the 2%. And the way that this is going to happen is not by persuading people that you are the fastest or the cheapest is by persuading people that you are the most trusted because the reason they're not buying these items is because they don't trust you. They don't trust you that buying this item is actually going to pay for itself in a way that helps them achieve their goals. And if they did trust you, then the sale would happen. And you don't earn trust by denigrating your competition. You earn trust by elevating what the industry stands for. And then the second half is, I think that when the people who seek to make change in an industry come together, they can't help but become more brave. And that what institutions like yours can do is remind people when they're on the right track and censor them when they're on the wrong track. Right? That what you can do is say, people like us do things like this. Raise the bar and remind everybody that they're doing work that's actually working. Thanks for that, Seth. That's fantastic. I want to invite Patrick Black to ask a question, see if I can get this unmuted. So far, so good. I'm very impressed with this. <laughs> yes, you're, you're batting a 1,000. There you go. Patrick, you're unmuted, my friend. Go ahead. All right. Thank you, Seth, for taking my question. Thanks, Mark and Kirby, for the opportunity. Seth, we live in a world that's way different than 10 years ago in the terms of marketing, and it seems consumers now, more than ever, seem to crave more personal relationships with companies. So because of this, do you think that we'll see more of a decline in the big box stores in favor of small businesses, and why or why not? I want to make sure I'm in sync. Big box stores that sell which? Well, just mainly let's clarify that as large companies versus small companies. Okay, so there's this inexorable movement in every industry for consolidation amplified by the way information flows, by natural monopolies, by the internet. And so you've got one Google, one Facebook, one Twitter. Sometimes you'll have a couple, but you're not going to have a thousand. Staples shows up and replaces hundreds of or thousands of office supply stores, but that's okay because there's Office Depot and six others. But then Amazon says, no, we're all of those things. But, and it's a big but, at the same time, we're seeing more and more people who would probably describe themselves as freelancers who are building two or three or four person organizations that can bring a personal non-commoditized touch to markets that want that. So whether it's a pop-up restaurant or someone who's got a letterpress shop, these are real companies who over time are going to get to the mature stage where they can actually invest money in marketing. I think if you want to be in this industry, you have no choice but to teach those people and cater to them because Amazon only needs one person to sell them the stuff you've got and 
you can't say I'm only going to sell to the top 10 companies in the world. I mean, someone can, but not many of you can. I think we've got time just for a couple of other questions here. I'm, I'm going to unmute Bill Petrie, who's got a good one. Uh, Bill, if you're set, welcome to the stage. Thank you very much, and this has been a most delicious podcast. Uh, oh, thank you, Bill. Yes, thank you. Seth, we're a competitive and, and somewhat commoditized industry where differentiation is absolutely critical. We all know that, but why do people continually follow the crowd even when they know they need to blaze their own trail? Because it's deniable and it's safer and it feels like the right thing to do because that's how you got to where you got today because you don't want to have to say, I messed up. The fact is, everyone has made art sometime in their life. They've done a finger painting that was original. They told a joke when they were seven. They kindly helped a stranger when they were 24. We all know how to do this, but we are surrounded by the forces that create writer's block, that create excuses, that create a reason to hide because it feels safe. That's what our culture did. So the thing that is scarce here is that willingness to embrace the tension. And so my job is to remind people that the tension is the point. Excellent. Thank you so much. Robert Fiveash has just submitted a, a most fascinating question, and I want him to ask it. Okay, Robert, you are on, my friend. Thank you, Mark Kirby. Seth, uh, good talking to you today. Quick question for you. You had mentioned the importance of failure and people seeing your resilience as a way to achieve the ultimate goal, which is trust. But look at Facebook and most social media today. It's mostly whitewashed, sanitized, no failures at all. The best photo out of 100 taken is the one posted. Is social media moving towards authenticity at a speed that will allow it to maintain its momentum and grow as a business tool? Or are businesses too risk averse to truly be authentic, warts and all? Thank you. Love that question. It's both. So go look up Amanda Palmer. And if you want to see warts, go look up Amanda Palmer. Go look up her journals and diaries and reporting to her true fans about what it is to be an artist and a musician. Amanda Palmer only has 22,000 true fans, not like Katy Perry or Lady Gaga. But Amanda Palmer did the most successful music Kickstarter in history, raised $1.2 million in 30 days. Amanda Palmer can record what she wants to record whenever she wants to record it. She got 4 million views for her TED Talk, and her book was a New York Times bestseller because Amanda Palmer is present and human and real. And if she wants to be super famous, she has to give up all of that. So she's decided not to be super famous. And that is your choice. You don't have to be varnished. You don't have to be fake. But you do have to trade in the fact it, you can't be trusted and famous to everyone at the same time. So that what you can do is realize that you only need 100 or 1,000, I don't know what the number is, really great clients. You don't need everyone. You need a small group of people that can look you in the eye and say, this is the real deal. He's not going to make me feel stupid in front of my boss. That choice flies in the face of, let me sell everything to everyone at the lowest possible price because I'm good at golf and I have a warm and hearty handshake. <laughs> Seth, do you have time for one more? I do. This is great. You are awesome. All right, Heidi Thorne, you posted a really interesting question and you are live. 
Yes, I am. Can you hear me, uh, Mark? <laughs> yes, live from Chicago. Excellent, excellent. And Seth, thank you so much. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and you certainly changed my business in many ways. Well, thank you. Uh, my, my question is, in today's legalistic environment where we have consumers expecting warranties and guarantees all the time, how do we deal with it might not work? Well, let's understand what it might not work means. I don't mean that you should be selling me 10,000 water bottles that have BHA and whatever in them that give my kids cancer and leak. Right? True. <laughs> it might not work. It could be something as simple as going to a meeting, looking the client in the eye, and telling her the truth. That might not work, right? That it might not work might mean putting on a conference for six competitors and asking them to come together for three hours to talk to each other about how they're going to the market space. That evening might not work. So when you do a thing that needs to meet spec, then yes, the spec ought to be met because that's a different kind of promise. The it might not work of a painting isn't, it won't be a painting, it's someone might look at this painting and not get it. Someone might look at the new specialty item that we gave away at this year's conference and might not like it as much as the water bottle they got every other year. That's the kind of it might not work I'm talking about. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Seth, as we close things off, I wanted to say three things to everyone. The first of which is as a reminder that Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization totally focused on education and mentorship within the industry. For people that are intrigued about what we're doing or want to get more involved, they can do so at promokitchen.org. Number two, again, a big, big thanks to, to Paul at PPAI and Lee and his team at Sanmar for their support. As I said at the beginning, we have expenses and we bring on supporters and, and friends that are able to keep us online and on the air. So a heartfelt thank you for your support and great questions there as well. And then third and finally, Seth, a huge, huge thank you for two reasons. First of which, you've spent 60 minutes of your time away from your staff because I understand you're making them lunch right now, so that's a big thanks. But I think more importantly, just thank you for inspiring so many people to be great and to take risks. And this has been such a special experience for me, for Kirby, and for everyone. And from that, thank you from the bottom of our heart. Well, it's a delight. It's a privilege. I hope people understand how lucky they are to have leaders like you guys. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for making it happen. Thank you, Seth, and thank you, Kirby, and thank you, everyone. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcasting service. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us on the web at promokitchen.org. See you next time.